Allison Evans from the Methodist Home for Children and Youth was here. Did you all enjoy her? She is a treasure and a wonderful speaker, and I'm so grateful for her ministry. Uh, thankful to Charlton for pinch hitting for our pinch hitter. Um, thank you so much. And, <laughs> uh, and guess what? I'm back. Which, you don't have to be happy about it, but I am. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, our lay leader elected to this position said, let us pray. <laughs> which, which I hope you do, in all honesty. I'm going to turn this into a preacher moment. I hope you do pray. Praise the Lord. Well, my friends, I want to turn our attention to the scriptures. We're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. The words will be on the screen. I'll invite you. You can follow along in your Bibles or on your apps. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, that is, flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and free those who who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help the angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And my friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Real quick, does anybody ever remember watching the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons? I know, I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here. They were on TV. Did anybody remember those? The little moose and squirrel? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. Somebody. <laughs> If I was to bring that up, we would have had a children's message today, and I brought that up. Do you actually know it, Jack? Now, you've seen the actual, the new movie, the CGM. I'm talking about the old school movie. So a TV show, every week, the episode would end, and it'd be like, join us next time. And then it would give a title, and then another title. So it'd be like, uh, Moose Goes Fishing, or Squirrel Jumps Off a Cliff. But it'd give you two titles, right? So I've, uh, I've taken a little bit of liberty today. So today's sermon is actually going to be called Football, Fishing, and Freedom, or the great fourth quarter comeback in the spirit of Rocky and Bullwinkle. So, now I don't know, you know, you got to do it every one of them. I don't know if anybody has ever wondered what it might look like if a group of pastors got into a heated argument. I don't know if you've ever wondered what that looked like. Well, if you have ever wondered what that would look like, then I've got some good news for you. I would be glad to invite you to my covenant group. It's a small group of pastors. There's about eight of us. We get together for prayer and mutual encouragement. I'll invite you to that group, and I will simply bring up Super Bowl 51. All I got to do. I know it's been a while, but it's still an open wound for these guys. It it really is. Uh, I know that a few few of these guys uh, are Patriots fans. That's fine. I don't need to make any commentary because Jesus loves Patriots fans as well as everybody else. The rest are diehard Falcons fans, which, I mean, the will of the people prevails. All right? So all you've got to do in this group of people is walk in and say, hey, 
Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, and then just back up and watch it happen. Or, or you can pop in and say, hey, the Falcons choked that day, and just back up. And they just step back and watch the brawl. They go at it. It's like it's an open wound, and they keep going the whole time. Now, you might not remember Super Bowl 51. It was uh, a couple Super Bowls ago. Um, but these guys remember it like it was yesterday, and apparently it means quite a lot to them. But just really briefly, you might remember that the Falcons were looking great for most of that game. With, and I'm sorry, if, if this is going to bring PTSD to anybody, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. I felt like there might be some tomatoes being picked up back here. But just hang with me. The Falcons were looking great for most of that game, but with just a few minutes left in the third quarter, they were up 28-3, to and it looked like, thank goodness, two appearances in the Super Bowl, they were going to win it. But by the end of the fourth quarter, the Patriots had tied the game. And just from 3 to 28, and there was nothing the Falcons could do about it, just nothing they could do. And the Patriots won in overtime. Blame the coin toss if you want to. It was the largest comeback in Super Bowl history. Now, whether it was the players whether it was the coaches, whether it was the refs, and it's always the refs, am I right? Or if it was the coin toss, no matter what it was, you could tell that something happened to the Falcons psychologically in the last quarter of the game. They felt the loss of momentum. They made mistakes they weren't making all game long. There were some strange play calls. There were some strange ref calls. It was like they were spooked. Now, you can disagree with that assessment all you want to. Uh, You can call Brian Wiggins to complain to him about that. I'm I'm good. But here's the point. Um, It's like they were playing to not lose instead of playing to win. It's a strange difference, and you can see that in sports all the time. The flow of the game changes, and a team gets stuck in their heads. It's like the threat of defeat changes the way they play the rest of the game. It's like the threat of defeat changes the way they play the rest of the game. You can see it in the peewee leagues all the way up to the pros. You can see it in the, in the Masters. You can see it in the NBA. Sometimes it seems like when the momentum shifts, the threat of defeat, just they get in their head and it changes the way they play. Now, we don't only see that in sports, however. We can also see that very concept in our lives. So this is where I'm going to put the Falcons down. So if you had covered your ears because you... You you hated hearing about that. You can get back to it. Because I think that same concept plays out in our lives. The threat of defeat changes the way that we live. The threat of defeat changes the way that we live. Now, Hebrews 2.15 describes humanity's defeat in a very interesting way. It describes what we're dealing with. Hebrews 2.15 describes humanity as bound by slavery to fear of death. Hebrews 2.15 describes the state of humanity as bound by slavery by the fear of death. Now, I, I feel that, that uh, bound, binding up when I'm, for example, at the very top of a tall ladder, uh, and I'm about to die as soon as I get up about more than three feet off the ground. I understand. You get, I ain't moving. I ain't doing nothing. I ain't changing that light bulb. I get bound by the fear of death. It sounds like a big claim, though. Humanity is bound by slavery to fear of death. And sure, there are probably times where we are thinking about death, probably. There might be some times uh, that you've had some close calls and you think about it, but you don't always think about it. Most of us are not always, always, always thinking about it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll get a glass of water. Sometimes we're going to work. Sometimes we're just not. 
So how is it that Hebrews can say that we are slaves to the fear of death? Hebrews is talking about something that is much more than that acute crisis kind of situation where the moment of dying is on our mind. In fact, Hebrews is talking about a chronic condition that invades our life. The fear of death is more than the, that moment, the fear of that moment of dying. Fear of death overall is the fear of not being. It's a fear of meaninglessness. It's the fear that after all of this is nothing. And that's a scary thought. And so it works its way backwards from that point of death all the way back into our daily approach to life, this fear of death. Because somewhere deep inside, even if you can't name it, a lot of people have sensed that the momentum has changed against us. And we get spooked, and we choke, and it affects everything about our lives. Let me give you some examples about this. So think about how defensive or protective we can get. How even if uh, somebody pokes us in a vulnerable place and we're not even in danger, how we could just get all anxious and defensive and protective. It's kind of like, it's kind of like we fight against anything that diminishes our value. We're playing not to lose, and we don't want any value being taken away. It's, it's kind of like we're slaves to it, the fear of that nothingness. I mean, think about this. Think about, and I know I'm the only one who does this, think about how we'll impulsively do things to make us feel good in a moment, forgetting the consequences. Anybody? No. We grab a hold of anything that can help us feel alive right now, right now, because I don't know if I've got another moment, and I don't know if I'll ever have this again because we are afraid of the nothing that might be coming. I mean, think about how driven a lot of people are to achieve and succeed. It's like, if I can stockpile enough accolades and meaning in my life, then, then maybe I can make a comeback. And when the end comes, I'll still have something left to show for it. Or maybe think about the compulsion to numb our hurts away. To disengage and... and make our hurt more numb. And we can do that in so many ways. We can do that chemically. We can do that physically. Some people do it in more socially acceptable ways, just plopping down in front of the TV all day long. We can just, it's as if if we can make it hurt less because if it hurts less now, then we don't have to worry about what might be coming down the way. You see, there are so many ways that even though we're not thinking about the moment of dying, that the, that the, fear of death binds us up and changes how we live. And through life, we can score all the points that we want. But death always makes a fourth quarter comeback. And life feels sometimes like stepping onto the field to play a game that you know you can't win. And so wouldn't it be great if we weren't the ones that got spooked? Wouldn't it be great if our opponent could choke instead? And they could be the ones that feel the swing of momentum. And they can be the ones that get all stuck in our head so that we can live victoriously along the way. According to Hebrews, that is exactly what happened on the cross. If you think back to the passage we just read, this passage picks up a a very prominent New Testament theme of the crucifixion. So in addition to paying the price for our sins on the cross dying the death we deserve and breaking the power of sin, 
On the cross, Jesus was also dealing the final blow in the cosmic battle between life and death. So much happens on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. He took our place. He defeated sin. But also, you can see throughout the New Testament that Jesus is fighting the battle with death itself in places unseen. Just listen to verses 14 and 15 again. It says this, Since therefore the children, that would be people, share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, be it flesh and blood, so that, for the purpose of, for the reason of, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death, who all their lives had been held, they can be set free. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. If you look at it, that's just one giant, giant sentence. Kind of a mouthful, and maybe it can be a bit confusing. Uh, but don't worry, I've got something that can help us make a little bit of sense of it. Uh, and I, I love it when, when this happens and I can do a little shopping for myself. I think that these can help us make a little bit of sense of this passage. A little fishing lure. Neil, you can use this after I'm done. I don't know what you can catch on this. I do know that the last time I went fishing, uh, Quinn kindly reminded me uh, that we decided we were going to use some cheese. And it didn't work so well. So I was super grateful for a chance to go by these fishing lures. Get this. So as far back as 200 A.D., Christians were talking about fishing to explain this very passage. And so when I sat down to, to read and do some studying, I thought, oh, here we go. I'm going to do some theological reading, thank you very much. I shall dig into the depths of Christian history, and it will be, oh, so entertaining. And then people like Gregory of Nyssa and Martin Luther are talking about fishing, and I thought, come on, these guys know what's going on. I said, honey, sorry, I can't, I can't hang out right now. Uh, for the sake of Jesus and the ministry of the church, I had to go to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy some fishing tackle. It was the best moment. I love it when it comes together like this. So think about this fishing lure. I promise this will work out. So it's shaped like this little fish, and even the package, it, it says something like, it's got a holographic wild eye to help attract the other fish to it. It's got this flappy little tail. You can just love it. It's got a flappy little tail. And so hidden in this lure, like with any other lure or with bait, is this hook. And so here's how it goes, in case you didn't know. I'm such an expert fisherman. I mean, I fished with cheese a few weeks ago. You couldn't want lessons from anybody better. You toss this little joker in there on your line, and then you just work it a little bit. Let that little tail waggle. And he looks just like a real fish. Come on, you know how it goes. You can have this when I'm done, buddy. And let that little tail waggle. And one of them big fish, you know it's going to be the biggest fish you ever caught because you're the one fishing and you're telling the story. The biggest fish you could have ever caught is going to come through. He's going to see this fish waggling his tail, see that crazy shiny eye, and he's going to gobble it up. Free dinner, baby. And that's when you, the expert fisher person that you are, because who knows if men or women are fishing, you are going to snap your line back and you're going to take that hook, set it right in the jaw, pull that joker out, and you've got yourself a fish. There you have learned how to fish. Fishing 101 from the Reverend Jim Morrow. There you go. Thank you very much. Uh, Brian, shall we pray? And I guarantee, if you, I expect some commission uh, if you catch anything this afternoon. So, but honestly, Martin Luther takes it from here. I promise you that it's super interesting. Check this out. Martin Luther from the 1500s, he says this. In a similar way, 
has our Lord God dealt with the devil. God has cast into the world his only son, and upon the hook he has put Christ's humanity as the bait. Because check this out. The devil, the one who has power over death, has some authority over the human condition. The one who has power over death has some say in what happens to flesh and blood. And in the end, he's going to go out and search and he's going to get his in the act in the name of death. And guess what? The, the God's cast out into the water with the Son of God and his humanity as the bait. The same thing that the one who has power over death is always seeking to gobble up. But Martin Luther reminds us this. Then comes the devil and snaps at the man and devours him. And therewith he bites the iron hook. That is the divinity of Jesus, which chokes him and thereby is thrown to the ground. Because, see, what you've got to understand is that the, the Hebrews tells us that just like we have flesh and blood, the Son of God became flesh and blood. He was fully human, but also what? Fully God, fully divine, all enmeshed together. And so that when the devil saw somebody getting ready to die, he said, oh, good, I've got another one, another one in the long string of other ones that I get to gobble up because I've got some authority over this business. And when he takes a bite, when he goes to catch the Son of God, he finds himself in a little bit of a trap because God is there, because divinity is there, something he did not expect and something that he cannot contain. And all of these old Christian guys from back in Christian history say at that point he was taken and spat out all of those that he had conquered in death for he had no more power. You see, it goes like this. I can just imagine the devil standing await at the cross, waiting to devour, devour Jesus in death, another in an endless line of humans swallowed up into its nothingness. But God had something else in store. In giving himself up for death on behalf of the world, Jesus laid a trap. Because he wasn't just fully human, he was fully God. Death might have claim on humanity, but death has no claim on God. And so when death took hold of Jesus, it choked on the divinity of Jesus. It swallowed the light of the world. And I don't know if you remember what happens when a light shines in the darkness. The Bible tells us something like the darkness cannot overcome it. And so like a fish caught by a clever lure, death was rendered powerless. The momentum had changed. The game had shifted. On the cross, Jesus staged the biggest comeback in all of human history. And caught in the trap, the one that has power over death choked. He spooked and he was doomed to defeat. No more power. Corinthians says, where, oh, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, where is your sting? The Bible says that Jesus did all of this to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The cross turns the tide. At the cross, the momentum has changed, and we have been set free from the fear of death, and that changes everything about how we play the game. You know some folks who are playing uh, the sports ball, they can choke. And they can get in their head, and the threat of defeat can change the way they play the game. But have you ever heard of somebody being on fire? 
Have you ever watched a game where there are four three-pointers shot in a row and the guy gets up to the foul line and all the announcers say, guess what, he's on fire. He's going to sink him because in the same way that defeat can get in your head and change the way you play the game, victory can get in your head and change the way you play the game. Jesus has broken the bonds of slavery to fear and death. And with his victory, all of humanity was offered an opportunity to join forces with him, to be set free from the power of evil and sin and death, and to live everyday lives of hope and freedom and love because we are living differently because we live in the thrill of victory. The chains are broken. But that does not mean that everyone has chosen to live in this freedom. The chains are broken, but no one is forced to leave them behind. Some people will sit and continue rowing. It's something that each of us must choose. But once we do, we are free to live in hope instead of fear. We are free to live as if victory has already happened instead of as if defeat is imminent. Let me give you a few examples of what this looks like because this also plays itself backwards into our everyday lives. Over the past few weeks, our church has been caring for and praying for a number of people who've been facing some difficult times. It seems like there's a lot happening right now in the lives of our friends and neighbors. And so here are a few examples of how Jesus' victory on the cross has changed the momentum of their lives. So one person found themselves with some setbacks that completely disrupted their life. But instead of giving into fear and living like they'd been defeated, they decided to choose freedom. They committed themselves to take their mind off of what was wrong and everything that was difficult and instead chose to encourage other people who are facing the same situation. This person chose to live with hope. Another person was struggling with some things and they decided that their situation was not going to consume them. Instead, they chose to focus on the ways that God showed up and bless them in the middle of all of that. You know how hard it can be to think of anything good happening when everything is spiraling down the drain? Well, this person made up their mind that they were going to focus on how God showed up and blessed them. And they've walked through their trial with about as much peace as I have ever seen anybody do. And on top of that, their faith, their marriage, their love for others has grown in a time when anybody else would have thrown in the towel. You see, this person's living, living with victory in mind, and it changes everything about what they're going through. They could have chosen to live with death in mind, and everything would have gone towards defeat. But they're living with freedom. And another one, another one that we know and love, found themselves having to put their dreams on hold because of some difficult times. But... They have not given up in bitterness and discouragement. Instead, they've redefined the dream. And they're walking through it with faithful attention and the peace that passes all understanding. They are no longer a slave to the fear of death. You see, this is what happens when we no longer live in the threat of defeat, when we're no longer in our head playing prevent defense against the inevitable, when we know instead that Jesus Christ on the cross has turned the momentum of all of human history and there is victory on the other end. It works its way backward. When you live with victory in mind, it changes everything. And I know it's quiet, and I know we're a little old Methodist church, but somebody say amen. Come on now. 
What about you? Here are some people who are living in the freedom and hope that Christ won for them on the cross. What about you? How could your life be different if it were marked by freedom instead of fear? If you knew deep down in your bones that Christ won the victory, what would you do differently in your current situation right now? And what if, what if even just a handful of us took a deeper step of trust in the victory of Jesus Christ today? What if just a handful of us did that and let go of our fear? Could you imagine the witness that we have in an anxious world that is just sure the old phrase is true that the world is going to hell in a handbasket? What if there were a group of people? What if there were, my goodness, what if there were somebody who believed something crazy like God became flesh, lured the devil into a trap, defeated the one who has power over death, and claimed victory over death? What if there were some people? I don't know where they would be. What if there were some people that stood tall and say, it looks like everything's going down and we're living in defeat, but I've got some good news for you. We are living in the truth because we know that we have won the victory. What if there was somebody to bear witness in a hurting and anxious world like that? What if there was somebody in Glenville? What if there were a group of people in Glenville who said, you can turn off the news for a second, buddy. I know it all looks bleak, but let me show you where you can win. Let me show you the way that we live in freedom instead of fear. What if? And what if there were a group of people like that in a church somewhere and and the tides of of hell came against them and everything seemed to be going in difficulty and their relationships were having struggle, but they said, you know what, I've got victory in Jesus and it doesn't matter that the gates of hell cannot prevail against this thing we got because we have victory and we're living like it. Do you see what kind of difference it makes? When instead of the inevitable defeat that works its way backwards and spooks us and makes us choke. What if? What if we lived in the victory of Jesus Christ, who has, by taking on human flesh, dying on the cross, has defeated the one who has power over death, that is the devil, so that those who have lived in bondage to the fear of death may be free. And somewhere in the Bible it says, whom the Spirit of the Lord sets free, they are free indeed. Jesus is victorious over death. And we are free from our slavery of fear and death. My friends, the chains are broken. And today, I invite you to cast them off and live with victory. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for the great work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has done so much more for us on that cross than we could have ever imagined. We thank you, O Heavenly Father, for taking our place, for making atonement for our sins, but also we thank you, God, for defeating death itself and for winning the victory even over that thing that seems so inevitable to us. Father, I pray for each one of us today that you would show us in our lives, where we are still being bound like we've already lost this life. So that we might be set free as we give ourselves more fully in faith and trust to the one who has defeated death in victory. Father, help us all into a place of deeper trust. And if there's that one thing that's just got us feeling like we can never win, the Lord, speak to it in these moments that we might live free and free indeed. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. My friends,